Judges chapter number 4, verse 1. I'm only going to read five verses this morning. The Bible says that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, said, say cried out, cried out to the Lord for help. For Sisera had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people came to her for judgment. Let's walk back in time about 3,200 years ago to a civilization almost polar opposite of where you're living today at least outwardly. But how many of you know that people are pretty much the same as they've always been? There's really nothing new under the sun. We have unique ways to express both our genius and our depravity in our generation in ways that former generations didn't have. But the heart of man, the heart of human beings is really still the same as it's always been. And the Bible isn't very flattering when it talks about the hearts of unregenerate people. It says the heart is deceitful above all things. And if that wasn't bad enough, it's desperately wicked. And if that wasn't bad enough, it says, and who can know it? Which means this, we can't even know our own hearts apart from the help and the enlightenment and the revelation of God. And yet for those of us that are born again, we've had an encounter with God that radically changed the substance of who we are from the inside and now it's working its way outside. Scripture teaches us that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And behold, that old things are passed away and all things become new. And that is the process that God has us all in. And yet when we look culturally right now, I want to tell you that I believe there are some parallels between when Deborah was living and serving that connect to when you are living and serving here in the 21st century. And so we're going to learn from her today, and I am praying for, and it's just amazing, when Dustin was praying for the gift of faith, and that is a gift, it is a charisma, it is in the list with tongues, it's in the list with healings and miracles and, and interpretation of tongues and words of knowledge, prophetic words, and there right in the middle of it is this statement about the gift of faith. And I'm praying that that will increase in your life and my life. Because all of the other gifts have a ceiling on them. And that ceiling is always faith. Because our gifting will never rise above the level of our faith to use that gifting. And so I want you to have faith this morning as we look into these five verses. Let's start in the first three and just recognize something right off the bat. Deborah was oppressed. Deborah was oppressed. This heroine, this wonderful woman, this mighty woman of valor was living in a culture and in a season and in a nation that was oppressed. What does the scripture say? It says that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they're morally oppressed by their own sin. 
And then the verse 2 says, So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was this tough dude named Sisera. And he lived in big name, long name, not going to even try. Verse number 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. And what did he do? What was his, his, uh, the, the summary was that he used all of his strength to oppress the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So let's just, let's walk backwards on a timeline. Let's go back to the beginning of 1998. And that's when your oppression began. Just think on that way. Oppression circumstantially, oppression morally, oppression nationally, oppression militarily. You lost your freedom. You lost your abundance. You lost your ability to live with a sense of hope because 20 years ago, somebody came in and tweaked the system. What's even heavier is the reality that this was a pattern that Israel had gone through. The Israelites kept going through this cyclical pattern where they would come and be blessed of God, and then they would take those blessings for granted. They would begin to stray from God, then enter into sin. God would send a a different power, a human power, to oppress them. They would cry out for help, and then God would deliver them, and then they would begin the pattern again. And so Israel's locked into this pattern of being blessed by God, then getting arrogant in that blessing and thinking they could live apart from God. And when they lived apart from God, they experienced the chastisement of God. And now here they are in this cycle, but now they're on the upswing. Why? Because it's been 20 years, 1998 to today. That's a long time. That's in their 20 years. That's where they were living. And they were being cruelly oppressed by some Gentile pagan king and his military leader who had 900 chariots. That's the equivalent then of what a tank, an Abram's tank, would be today. And Israel didn't have anything. And so they were in bondage, and they're in the middle of that that culture and that country that was in bondage was a woman. Now, you need to understand something. Prior to the life, the ministry, and the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles, women were oppressed in every single culture anywhere in the world. And where the gospel is not prevalent today, they are still oppressed. People often mistakenly view Christians and Christianity as suppressive or oppressive against women. When if they would just do some simple fact-finding, they'll find out that is where the gospel has flourished, that women have been invited to become all that they are, where in Christ there is no, neither male nor female. It is in the absence of the gospel where oppression comes to, into play. And so Deborah was living in Israel, which itself at that time had an archaic view of women. Women were regarded in many places in Israel as property. Women were regarded in ways that was completely devaluing of them. And so Deborah is among the gender that is most oppressed in the midst of an oppressed nation. So in other words, what am I trying to say? Her circumstances circumstances offered her zero advantage. Zero. And yet what we're going to find out about her life is that none of that stopped her. None of that owned her. None of that became an excuse by which she chained herself to substandard living in the kingdom of God. She barely, we're going to find out in these two chapters, she barely seemed to notice. Why? Because there was a liberty that Deborah was experiencing on the inside 
that helped her contextualize the oppression that was going on on the outside. In other words, she was defined by the liberty inwardly so that the, the oppression outwardly could not dominate her and own her. How could we say it simply? Uh, he that was living in her was greater than the ones that were living in the world. It's a New Testament theology lived out in an Old Testament character. So let's talk a little bit about her. What I'm going to do today is I'm just going to go through chapters 4 and 5, and I'm going to just tell you what this woman did. And I'm just hoping that some of you daughters of God and some of the men of God in this place will recognize there's a whole lot more to a woman's value in the kingdom than just her role in the home. Than, than just her role as a wife, just her role as a mother. Now, those things are of primary importance because that is the way God has gifted and entitled and structured. But listen, friends, there is so much more than that. And so if we limit a woman, a daughter of God in whom dwells the, the Spirit of God, if we limit her only to a domestic ministry, then we are failing God, we're failing her, and there is no wonder that there's not the power being displayed in the church where we're trying to keep spirit-filled women attached in their homes and nowhere else. So let's look at what she did. First of all, Deborah is first titled a prophetess. The first thing that's spoken about her in verse number four is that she was a prophetess. There's no expanding of it. There's no unpacking of it. It's just a statement that in a dominated, oppressed culture where women were often viewed inferior, God in his sovereign wisdom said, I'm going to use somebody. I think it will be not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, but her. Now, we don't know why. There's no indication that she earned it. There's no indication that, that she had done a song and dance to get the attention of God because she wanted it. All we're told is that by this time, Deborah was known in her generation as a prophetess. Let me give you this very quickly. There's a misunderstanding also about Deborah's life. A lot of people think God used Deborah because there wasn't a man to use. You just don't find that in the Bible. As if God's plan A was all the men in the kingdom, but none of them were up to par, so he had to go to plan B and he had to use Deborah. You just don't find that in Scripture. It's not there. I want to tell you something. Plan A was Deborah. There, there wasn't a better specimen in the nation because if there was, God would have picked him or her. God looked at, that, at all the people and said, this is the one. So she's not a default. She's not a mulligan. She's not a do-over. She's the first pick. And she's a prophetess. I like this because this is both provoking the religious spirit and encouraging the, the Holy Spirit in you. There were, there were other female prophets, by the way, in the Bible. You got Miriam. Remember Miriam, the sister of Moses in the book of Exodus, chapter 15? You've got a lady we don't talk too much about, a lady named Huldah in the book of 2 Kings 22. She's also in 1 Chronicles chapter 34. Huldah was a prophetess. You've got a, a, a lady named Noadiah in Nehemiah chapter 6. A lot of people just assume that's a guy, but the name is actually feminine in the, in the original language. It's more of a feminine name. So you've got Noadiah in Nehemiah 6. You've got Isaiah's unnamed wife in Isaiah chapter number 8. Then when we get to the New Testament, you've got the four daughters of Philip in Acts 21. And then, as if we were potentially tempted to think, yeah, but those are rare or uncommon. If you read 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is writing the church at Corinth about spiritual gifts, he is instructing how prophetic activity ought to go, in, go, to, go on when the church is gathered, and he gives specific instruction to women as they are prophesying. 
So brothers, this is why am I saying that? Now, I, this may be no big deal to you, but I'm actually fighting against a lying spirit that has infected the evangelical church and even to a certain extent, some of the charismatic assemblies in the world that says women ought to just be quiet and, and, and suppresses as if the Holy Spirit in them could not articulate things that are beneficial. And so what do we do? We go to the Bible that says, well, Deborah did it, and Miriam did it, and Huldah did it, and Noadiah did it, and Isaiah's wife did it. And then Joel, in Joel chapter 2, prophesied at the end of the age when the Holy Spirit would come, that he would come indiscriminately. He would pounce upon the old and the young and the male and the female and the slave and the free. And so we've got this outpouring, and, and yet here we are 2,000 years after Pentecost, and people are still debating that if whether or not women can be used in a prophetic role amongst the church. And the answer is, well, if you don't believe your Bible, then no, they can't. But if you do believe your Bible, yes, they can, they have, they are, and they will. And so she was a prophetess, and we're going to get to explore some of the prophetic words she gives in these two short chapters. Now, not bypassing this, Deborah was also a wife. I love this. Her husband's got a weird name, Lapidoth, Lapidoth. Probably could have studied out what it meant, but frankly, I don't care. He's Lapidoth, and he's Deborah's husband. And there's just not a whole lot that is said about Lapidoth. I do want to, I I in a sanctified way, assume a couple of things about him. I'm going to assume that Lapidoth recognized the touch of God on his wife, the hand of God on his wife, and he didn't try to chain her to the kitchen. He didn't try to chain her to the nursery. He didn't try to chain her anywhere, but I believe he must have been a wise man because based on the life of Deborah as we see it played out in Scripture, this woman moved very freely in the prophetic office that God had given her. But she was married. I love the fact that, ladies, you don't have to choose between the two. You know, there are some stout women of God in our generation. And I, I remember back in my denominational days where I was trained that, you know, also in all sorts of error, and one of them was about the roles of women in the church. And I remember I would see these women, and I would get mad because they preached better than a lot of men that I knew. And in my heart, I was trained that they're not allowed to do that. They're breaking the rule, and yet the hand of God is on them. And so there was a part of my heart back in the day that wanted to suppress that because of a misunderstanding of a handful of New Testament Pauline epistle passages. And so those were misapplied, and I thought, well, she shouldn't be doing that. And yet what I come to find out is that the hand of God and the Spirit of God, when it works through a person of God, a woman of God, that there is no distinction God communicates in a different way through different people. He's wired us all differently. And there are things that we can learn from a woman operating in a prophetic ministry that we may not be able to learn from men. Yet the beauty of it is this. Deborah didn't mind going home and being a wife. She didn't have to come in all jackbooted and strutting and (laughs) barking at Lepidoth or whatever his name is. And, you know, know, she, she didn't have to be a man to be strong. You know, I think one of the things, my wife keyed me in on this a few years ago, and it's always stuck with me. We were talking just in general about women's roles in the church and strength and authority and power and ministry and all of those things. And she said, as as a woman, what broke her heart is that our, our culture had twisted women's thinking to believe that in order to be strong, they had to become hard. And I remember when Amy said that to me, that had been five, six years ago, and I was like, man, that is... So true, it's so good. 
There's just something irresistible in, in a holy way about a woman who is operating in her identity in Christ and whatever level of femininity that she chooses to operate in, and she can be both female and a powerhouse at the same time. And she doesn't have to be a man. She doesn't have to grow a beard. She, you know, she, she doesn't have to look like a man or operate like a man, but she can be fully feminine and fully prophetic or whatever you want to describe. She gets to be who God's made her to be. And so one of the things that I think is so important as we go into this, and we're going to see this over and over again in Deborah's life, but I'll throw it out here right now, is that I think there is, because of the things I prayed against earlier, misogyny, chauvinism, cultural oppression of women, uh, and then ecclesiastical oppression of women in the church, or disregard, or just some assuming that women have a lesser role, that there is within potentially the heart of women, Christian women, when they hear a message like this, they want to make up for lost ground and make up for last, lost time. And so they're, they, they overcorrect. And they, have to, they, they feel like they have to go and wrench territory away. And the beautiful thing about Deborah is you don't even see her wasting her time trying to change the whole culture. She just put all of her time and energy into listening for the Father and speaking what he said and then doing what he did. So she wasn't really a crusader. She, she wasn't out to change the roles of women. By the way, there were 12 judges that are mentioned in the book of Judges. Only one was female. And only Samuel and Deborah, and Samuel hadn't even come on the scene yet, so Deborah was the first of those two. Only Samuel and Deborah fu functioned both as prophet and judge. So she was a rare breed. And yet she got to go, go home and enjoy all of the roles that also come with a wife. I just want to say this before moving on. I think all of our callings, male or female, God gives them not to put distance between us and our spouse, but he wants to use our individual and unique callings so that we're not in competition with each other, but we, we experience a greater complementing of each other. I want my wife to be strong. I want her to be prophetically anointed. I want her to operate in all of the gifts of the Spirit. There will be times where she has the best word to give in that moment, and my job is to be quiet and say amen when she says it. That doesn't make me weak, and it doesn't make her strong. It makes us both children of God abiding in our callings. And yet there's a temptation for, for such competition. And we're going to see in Deborah's life, especially in her relationship with Barack, that, that they actually didn't compete with each other. They, they, they just helped each other accomplish the will of God. The third thing, or the fourth actually, she was a wife, she was a prophetess, she had been oppressed. But here we go, Deborah was a judge. That's the title that's given her at the end of verse 4 and moving into verse 5. Deborah was judging Israel at that time. Now, I, I like this about verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and all the people came to her for judgment. Now, I'm going to risk it with this a little bit. Anytime I step out on a limb, I want to go ahead and give you a disclaimer. And this is a little bit of a limb, but I felt like the Lord kind of cemented something in my heart as I studied this. First of all, it says that she was a judge. It's not a different word than it is applied to all the other 11 judges. 
It's not, a, it's not a, a judge light. She's not a second tier, lesser tier of being a judge. She has all of the authority and all of the power and all of the qualifications to be a judge in Israel. And by the way, that's not like a judge here in Gwinnett County. When you were a judge over Israel, you're the authority. You're, you're actually the leader. You're, 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 especially in this time, you are the person that is determining the course of the nation. And so she entered into this role both as a prophetess and a judge. I, my guess is, is that her prophetic anointing opened up the recognition that she would be the judge because nobody else in the land was being the prophetic voice of the Lord. And then 20 years of oppression had been taken place. And somewhere in the midst, Deborah emerges as the person of discernment the person of discretion, the person of wisdom, the person of authority. But there's something I like, uh, uh, something that's noteworthy to me. Typically, in Israel's history, and although Jerusalem had not yet been established, matter of fact, that while we're reading this, Jerusalem is still in the hands of pagans. Jerusalem was not yet the city of the people of God yet. But they're, they're migrating towards the conquering of Jebus, who would, become, uh, would unfold into Jerusalem being the capital of Israel. But what's interesting is in Israel's history, there was always a location where counsel would be given, where verdicts would be rendered, where cases would be heard, where anointings would happen. And it was almost always defined as the city gates. And that's where the judges, that's where the leaders, that's where oftentimes the kings. If you remember when King David was king and Absalom was trying to steal the kingdom from his father, where did Absalom go? He did business at the city gates because it was the place of influence. And yet the Bible says that Deborah as the judge, and you just bear with me on this, throw it out if you don't like it, but I just believe there's something to it. That Deborah as the judge was not ministering with the other elders of Israel. She wasn't in that same setting where the men were. And I'm wondering to myself, because the Bible says she ministered where? Under the oak of Deborah. It was, it was kind of out on the outskirts. It was up on a hill. It was kind of out there somewhere. And there's something in me that just as I was pondering this this week, I was saying, God, could it be that even then, even with Deborah's anointing, even with her authority, even with her leadership, she was, knew she wasn't welcome with the men at the city gates? Wow. Wow. But what's beautiful is this. Whether or not that's true, What's awesome is she may not have had the position, but she still had the influence because she was sitting under a tree and the Bible says all of Israel was going out to see her. I got a little bit of a warped sense of humor. I see all these dudes in Israel in Deborah's day strutting up to the city gates, another day of business. Here we go today. Who's going to come to me for wisdom today? Hear ye, hear ye. I have your answers. I have your wisdom. I have your verdicts. Come to me. And there's three of them there. Nobody else. <laughs> Why? Because they're all marching up to the oak of Deborah because that's where the wisdom is. That's where the voice of God is heard. That's where the discernment is heard. Why do I even bring that up? My, my, my point is this. Deborah didn't wait for somebody to make it happen for her. Deborah didn't feel like she had to ask permission. Be careful with that, but I want you to hear it because there is something that is embedded in a calling of God that you're going to be tested on. If your calling is from God, you're going to be tested because I promise you there will be sources from the flesh and from the enemy that will contest that calling. Happened to me. I got called three months after, I, four months after I was saved. 
Yeah, four months after I was saved, on a Wednesday night, December 14th, 1994, I got called into ministry. It was a su- I didn't even believe in the supernatural back then. It was a supernatural calling that shook me to my bones. And when I started telling people that I was called, here's what people t- told me. Not hallelujah, Jeff, preach it, brother. But I had people tell me, well, you're single, aren't you? Yeah, you don't have a wife, right? Well, you, you're not qualified to be in ministry. So, oh, yeah, well, tell that to God because he called me. And, and then it was, well, have, do you have any education? Have you finished your seminary degree? And I haven't even begun it yet. Don't even know where to do I'm just telling you last Wednesday, God called me into ministry. And I had these people telling me all the reasons why I could not do what God called me to do. And I just got enough of bulldog in me. I see that Alabama shirt right there too, brother. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. I bless you in the name of Jesus because he told me to bless my enemies. Amen. <laughs> But I got enough of a bulldog in me where those guys were telling me what I couldn't do. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. And what's amazing is, is God just prospered. Why? I didn't try to correct them. I didn't go and pout and suck my thumb in my room, feeling nobody's in my amen corner. I just said, I know what God has called me to do. And where God has provided the calling, he will provide the outlet for that calling. And ladies, I want to tell you something. Some of you have a calling that has not been affirmed by the church. And, and you've wrestled with, could it be? I, I would submit to you, I, man, I'd almost guarantee it, that there were people in Deborah's day that were offended that a woman was providing the direction and the leadership mantle for the entire nation. And yet you don't find anywhere in there where Deborah goes off on them. She doesn't try to overhaul the system. She just overcame the system. You see, the, the, the spirit of uh, sometimes rebellion can be, well, I'm just going to fix the system. You will spend your whole life trying to fix systems sometime and may not ever triumph. But if you will just trust God, you will overcome the system. And when enough people overcome a system, that's when God overhauls a system. But we focus on overhauling it and we become crusaders and martyrs and we don't end up finishing the course that God has given us individually. So this woman was a judge, and she didn't play, as you'll find out. By the way, here's one. If I hadn't stretched you so far, here we go. Deborah was a military advisor. Chapter number 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. So here she is, sitting under the oak. And the Bible is very clear in the language. Deborah sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and and she said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 5,000, excuse me, 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And she's speaking on behalf of the Lord here. Here's the prophetic word. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Now, this is really, really good. So she's a judge, which means she has some civic influence. She's a prophetess, which means she's got kingdom power. And she's also operating in both that civic influence and that kingdom power. And she summons the leader of Israel's military. And she gives a prophetic word. And she says, "Uh, God's been talking to you. And in essence, she's saying, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Has he not already? That's the implication there. Has he not already told you, get your men together, go down. He's going to take care of the enemy and you're going to win the battle. I love the fact that her prophetic influence, her insight, and by the way, let me just say this, all these little rabbit trails, but some of them are profitable. Some of you ladies actually have prophetic gifting, but because you've never been in a church culture that helped you unpack it, first validating it, 
Second, teaching you how to use it. And third, helping you to actually flow in it. You think that what your prophetic gifting is, you know you've got something, but it's, you're calling it women's intuition. You may have women's intuition, but you may also have prophetic gifting. It's more than just discernment. Not everybody with discernment has prophetic gifting. But in this case, she used her prophetic gifting in this arena of military advisor. Now, it's going, to be, it's going to be amplified later. She didn't just give that prophetic word. She actually ended up going down into battle. Though she, she's not re, uh, reported as slinging a sword or you know, firing off a slingshot or anything, but she is part of the military advisement. What, why do I even bring that up? Well, chances are most of the women in this room are, are not going to end up on the battlefield physically or militarily on behalf of the United States. But I, I would encourage you with this. The gifting and the anointing, the abilities God has given you, they can be used in a way for the greater battle. The greater battle is the battle against the forces of hell and the church of the living God. The greater battle is light against darkness, good against evil, whatever you want to say, however you want to wrap that up. But what we understand is according to Scripture, that God has a remnant of people in every generation that are advancing the glory and the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the only job that Satan and his demons and all the forces of hell have, the only job they have is to resist that. The number one thing that Satan hates, and all of his demons also hate it by proxy, the number one thing that Satan hates is God being glorified. Right. Why? Because he wanted that glory for himself. And when he could not get that glory, after seeking that glory, he was evicted from heaven and he was cursed. And now we, John 17, we reveal the glory of God in our unity and our oneness. And so Satan hates the fact that when we are in unity and oneness, we reveal the glory of God. So what does he do? He wants to fight the church. That's what he wants to do. And so wherever we go in this greater battle, because that battle doesn't stop when you go to work. That battle doesn't stop. That battle wants to get into your home. The devil has an agenda for your home. Mark it down. You're, you're not immunized. You're not the only person that he doesn't fight against. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, friends. This is a spiritual war. And yet, the, the joy is this. If you will, if we will, just start taking ownership of our identity and who we are in the Father's love, who we are in the decrees that he's spoken over our lives, and we will operate in that, whether it's a military advisor, or whether you work at a law firm, or whether you work in a kitchen, or whether you work in any other field, where you go, you are a soldier of God. And so you are able to win battles. And friends, Deborah's, in this case, was to literally become a military advisor. So here we are, about eight verses into her story. And you find out that as an oppressed woman, she didn't play the victim. It's so important. If she spent her time thinking that the whole world was against her and that she never stood a chance, she never would have been qualified to live this life. But she didn't deny the reality. Scripture doesn't deny the reality that she lived in a professed, excuse me, oppressed culture. But she never even seems to glance at it. She just rises above it. Why? Because she had set her affection on things above and not on things of the earth. And so she's a prophetess. She's a wife. She's a judge. She's a military advisor. Into chapter number five, I love this, the other side of the coin. Deborah was a singer and a songwriter. It's there, friends. I'm not making this stuff up. 
The Bible says, then sang Deborah and Barak. This is after a victory that we'll talk about maybe next week. They, they sang this song, Deborah and Barak, the son of a ben, whatever, on that day. Um, I like this. This is just, there's freedom in this if you'll receive it. Lord, help me with this. We as people have this addiction to pigeonholing other people. We slot them. We draw quick and fast conclusions about them based on what we see, based on what we hear. We do it demographically, generationally, racially, nationally. We look at people and we do something that the Bible forbids. We, we, are, we prejudge them. Prejudice is simply an unpacking of the word prejudging. We can, if we're not careful at this point, look at Deborah and say, well, she's just something complete. She's just a powerhouse. She's fire, man. She is an atomic bomb in Israel. She is a blazing kingdom meteor. That's not my temperament. That's not my style. That's not my, my bending or leaning. That's just not the way I am. And yet here we are. We see this woman with all this raw power. And then when you get to chapter number five, she's like, yeah, y'all, y'all go out to the battlefield. I'm going to write a song for Jesus. She writes this song. I know it says she sang it, but I want you to know if you'll read the song in chapter 5, you'll find out she wrote it because it's a testimony of how God was using her. And it's incredible that this woman of power, this woman of prophetic anointing, this woman with civic influence, that means she was influencing her culture and her kingdom, this woman who was under national oppression and gender oppression, there was still something in her that could not steal her praise. And so she writes this song, and then what's crazy is she sings it. She doesn't just write it and give it to the choir. She writes it, and she gets the dude who's running, the, he's the military general. And she says, Barack, in the name of the Lord, this is going to be a duet. <laughs> and her and Barack sing this song that she wrote. Listen, just hear me on this, please. I'm going to take a moment and pastor us. Allow room for people to be diversified. Crucify that impulse that's in all of us to slot people, to box people, to frame them up and categorize them. And listen, I just want to be honest. This is epidemic, not just in the culture, it's epidemic in the church. Here, I'll make you uncomfortable for a moment. Would you like that? Some of you walked in today, and based on what you saw with somebody during worship, you drew some conclusions. (laughs) It got quiet. (laughs) Oh, she's one of those. Oh, he's like that. Um, I've I've had to referee the worship wars for about eight years. So I know all of that junk. And I just got to a point where I was like, man... I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to try to honor those that are around me. I don't want to be a stumbling block, but neither do I want to be a slave as to what other people might think about how I express my worship and praise to the Son of God who died for me, rose for me, lives for me, and is coming for me again. And you know what? So I'm a little energetic. I'm, you know, I, I like to shout. I like to lift my hands. I try to dance. I'm not good at it, but one day I will be. I, I like to do all that. But listen, that doesn't make me more of a worshiper than the person who sits there in silence 
And in reverence, in their mind, this is the best way. And, and with tears of gratitude. You see, that's the thing. If, you can't be focused on the Lord if you're constantly focused on other people. So you're really not worshiping if you're grading other people. The Lord doesn't want us to slip in a couple of amens, hallelujah, we love you, Lord, while we're checklisting everybody else around us. But we pigeonhole people. And I think we pigeonhole gender. Now listen, I want to be very clear on this. There's two genders, male and female. They are assigned and unchanging and unchangeable at birth, at conception, actually. And so I am not, some of y'all are getting a little weird, like, um, where is he going with this? Come on. But guys, hear me on this. We're not altogether comfortable all the time with women that walk in authority in the kingdom. Some men are intimidated by it. It, it happens in our culture. I think if we're going to be walking, matter of fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strengthen it. I know if we're going to be walking in everything that God has for the church in this season, we will have to enthusiastically release all people to become who they are in Jesus. And we will do that again, green lights, guardrails. The scriptures define, the scriptures teach us. But having said that, I will, I will submit this. There are some fundamental misunderstandings about what people think the scriptures teach regarding women in the kingdom. And in the upcoming year, it may be the greatest battle that I've ever faced in ministry. And I've faced a bunch of them. The greatest battle may very well be when God continues to push me forward and saying, make sure that everyone knows my daughters are free. My daughters are free. My daughters are free. Not in some enigmatic kind of ethereal sense, but where are they free and how are they free? And we're not the ones freeing them. We are called to recognize the freedom that has been given them. Yes. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 1, I think it's 5, maybe 6. It's the first verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty into which you have been called. And so we have got to recognize this, that the reason why large segments of the church are anemic and withered and atrophied and, and, and just without power is because half or more of the church, the visible church, is being told you can only do this and nothing more. And this season will be a, a visible liberation of women to step into their calling. Now, and again, go ahead, sure. Again, it's not us that's liberating them, fellas. We ain't doing anybody any favors. It is us acknowledging what the Father has had in his holy council since the church was founded. Right. Yet the Western church has said no to so much that God has said yes to, and I don't believe he's willing to allow that to continue anymore. So she, she could be on the battlefield, and she could also be in the studio writing and singing a song, and I love that about Deborah. She's multifaceted. Go ahead and be as diverse as the Lord wants you to be. Listen, don't be afraid of it. You know, if, if you've got a fighter spirit and God's just, you're born for war in the kingdom, that's the way I'm wired. But I'm going to tell you something. There are times where I sit with my wife and I'll weep like a baby. And I don't think that it undermines my strength. It may be embarrassing to my flesh, 
but I don't think it makes me weak because I don't have to be in a fight 100% of the time. Sometimes I get to be compassionate. Sometimes I get to be merciful. Sometimes I get to be grieved. Sometimes I get to be tired. Sometimes I get to be quiet. But if we're not careful, we'll, we'll, we'll treat each other and we'll say, look, I, I've got you figured out. Performance on demand. Be who I want you to be. How dishonoring to people that is. How, how good it's going to be when we recognize, and this is, by the way, this kind of stuff is only born in intentional relationship. We don't learn this about each other when all we do is gather in a room together. That's why Dustin's promoting so every week, you need to be part of a house church. You need to be part of a house church. You've got to do life side by side with people. Let me get down to the end of this. Verse Chapter 5, verse 7, and I'm, we're going to unpack all this in the next few weeks, but Deborah was a spiritual mother. I love this. So this may be the most important thing we learn about her in this uh, series. In her song, she gives this lyric. This is Deborah's words that she's singing in chapter 5. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. We're not told anywhere that she had any physical children. Chances are her and Big L, whatever his name is, did not have offspring. But Deborah realized that her influence was giving birth to something that had eternal value. Spiritual mothering. There is a dearth in the land of spiritual mamas that, that can be both nurturing and wise and prophetic that can laugh with you, that can cry with you, can also give you a, a backhand to the back of the head when you're not thinking straight. And we, we, we are living in a generation of both spiritual and cultural and kingdom orphans, not to mention physical orphans. And it, where the, literally there are children that are just crying out because they never experienced the reality, the gift of maternal love. Where the heart of God coming through a female into the heart of a child that has no mother, no father. Do you know how many lives and souls and, and destinies have been rerouted because some woman who wasn't the physical mother but became the spiritual mother stepped in and said, you will be as loved by me as if you were my own child. And friends, though you might not be a candidate for adopting, but if you are, there's plenty of people around here that would love to talk to you. I do, man, I'm, I'm, there's grace on this. Some of you that are wrestling right now with adopting, I'm going to encourage you right now in this mo moment to press in and not be afraid of all the unanswered questions. That the Lord's offering you courage right now where you lack clarity. You're looking for answer upon answer. And what he's trying to do is just get your heart really to trust him because he wants to use you. There are just some things we figure out as we go with the Lord. And so if that word lands with you, just process it before him. The last thing. Deborah was a national hero. It's 3,200 years later, somewhere around there. And we're sitting in Lawrenceville, Georgia, talking about her. That's a testimony. The Bible says in chapter 5, verse 31... And again, it's in her song. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And then the Bible just adds this footnote. It's the end of Deborah's story. And the land had rest for 40 years. 
Deborah was the singular individual whom God chose to spark an awakening that touched not only the the heart of, of individual Israelites through her ministry as a judge, but touched the heart of the military leader through a prophetic word. He acts on that word, and they go into battle, and they destroy the dude with 900 chariots. I cannot wait to tell you, because there's another woman in the story of Deborah that you're going to really like. I mean, she is hardcore. This lady named J.L., she is hardcore. Some of you are going to like that a little too much. You better start (laughs) repenting ahead of time. But what this lady does is hardcore. The, The point being is this, is that all she did was operate in her identity. She knew who she was, no matter what anybody else might have known or not known. She knew who she was. She didn't let anybody encroach upon her identity. And she protected with a kingdom passion her role in the kingdom. And she lived it out forthrightly. And she did it all as a woman, pleased to be a woman, not trying to be a man. That's what makes her so neat. That's the difference between her and Gloria Steinem. You hear me? All you young bucks don't know who that is, but... Worship team, come on up, please. I cannot end a sermon on Gloria Steinem. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Lord. So what's at stake with these thoughts? What's at stake? I believe there are things in the kingdom that God has reserved for his daughters that he will not offer to his sons. Now, theologically speaking, daughters are sons in the kingdom, but you know what I'm saying. For Christian women that he's not offering to Christian men. And if we don't recognize that, then the ministry in our generation of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven whereby men must be saved, no other name, then that ministry will be hindered. That advance will be gasping. But if we will, with wisdom and humility, not as fleshly motivated crusaders, to shot block all these misogynistic, chauvinistic men that have been keeping us down for all these decades. No, that's not the heart of Jesus either. But forgetting those things which are behind, daughters of God, you're pressing forward into the things that are ahead of you. Why? Because there is the prize of the high calling of God on you in Jesus Christ. Today, I'm going to give an invitation, and anybody can come, especially those of you that have never bowed to Christ, and I use that word intentionally. He's a king. He's not a buddy to shake hands with. He's a king to bow before, and he is the most merciful, compassionate, gracious, and loving king you will ever meet. You will never regret bowing before Jesus. You'll never regret it. He's awesome. He's good, but he doesn't play. He doesn't play around. He doesn't make exceptions to the rule. What is the rule? That we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there's none righteous, not a single one of us. And through faith in Jesus Christ and his blood that he shed on Calvary, 
our sins can be eternally expunged. That means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be placed on your account before God. And the sin that was on you will be placed upon him as he died for it on the cross. There's got to be a moment in your life, friend, where you yield and you surrender to this awesome king. And if you've never done that, I want you to come this morning in just a few moments. And you let one of these people that's going to be up front, just let them know, I'm ready to meet the king. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. For the others, I'm not going to avoid the heavy emphasis on women. Daughters of God, this is your season. You've got leaders here in this church that are going to shepherd an entire flock to give you every possible opportunity to step into who you are meant to be, to recognize that, and then to embrace what God has called you to do. Forget the system that has been stacked against you. The one that is in you is greater than the system that has come against you. There's not a man in the world that can keep you from walking with Jesus. There's not a man in the world that can do that. There's not a man in the world that can keep you from fulfilling the call of God on your life if you want it. There's not a man or a system or a philosophy that can undermine the reality that your heart is his and you know that he's got something for you that you've not stepped into yet. So what am I offering you today? I'm offering you to press in a little further this morning with some steps of faith. Enter into agreement with some of our ministry team. Ministry team, come on, come on down. Male and female ministry team, come on down. But this morning, it's an opportunity to say yes. Gentlemen, say, Jeff, what's in this for us? What's in it for you? The joy of watching the daughters of God, your sisters, become who they were called to be. That's what's in it for you. So why don't we help them? Why don't we say yes to that? So, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, let faith arise in this house. Would you stand to your feet? Let faith arise. Let fear be abolished. I pray, Lord, that you would resurrect callings that got placed in man-made graves, that, Lord, you gave callings that through fear or insecurity or erroneous statements made by others, those callings got put back in the ground. I pray that you would bring resurrection to callings today. I pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit as Acts 2 and Joel 2 said. You have, Lord. And yet do it afresh and particularly on the daughters of God here at Newbridge. Raise up a Deborah anointing that'll blanket this house. One, Lord, that allows them to be as strong as a warrior on a battlefield and as tender as a singer and songwriter making melody in her heart unto you. I pray you'll bless motherhood and wifehood, but Lord, I pray that you'll also expand our understanding that though your calling may include that, it is not limited to that. Raise up now, Father, in this hour, your daughters that will say yes, pressing into what is next. In Jesus' name, amen.